How long was I gone for? It's difficult for me to tell these days. Because I'm not sure what my purpose is. So days, weeks, hours all feel the same. When I had a dark purpose, at least it was a purpose. Now, though, I feel light as air. I am purposeless. It is an errant lightness, like a feather caught in a gust of wind, directionless yet full of surrender. For I do surrender to the beauty of this world, to the beauty of you and your kind that was once my kind, the beauty of each and every terrible thing from the sky that wants to kill me. I surrender. I surrender also to chance, to opportunity, to failure. Where am I going and what am I striving for? I have no idea right now. But I know that I'm throwing up my arms and asking the world to take me somewhere good. Help me win. I suppose victory would be easier if it was clearer. What do I win by winning? Have I not already won? What is my prize? Ah, I see. Perhaps I'm mad with power or the giving up of it. Either way, life is good, I think. Or if life isn't good, I can still be good. This week, my story is about surrender. Because, you see, people can love many different things. And sometimes love can come with greed. Real love, of course, is selfless, as I'm sure you've heard countless times. Real love does not covet, does not yearn to possess. But perhaps it isn't real love that we seek after all. Anyway, where was I? Oh, yes. Loving the wrong thing. And the inability to surrender. There was a woman who... I'm having trouble with this week. <laughs> I'm having trouble keeping my story straight. Bear with me, please. I'm sorry. I had intended to tell you a story about a haunted treasure. That's what I told you I was going to say this week. That's what you were led to believe. And believe me, please, my friends, I fully intended to tell you such a story, but it's... It's not coming out. Let me try again. There was once a woman who had a terrible inheritance that she wore like a badge of honor, but didn't realize was actually a terrible shackle around her neck. She lived in an old manor house that had existed for centuries before her, and it belonged to her family. Or, rather, her husband's family. 
Her husband was the sole heir of a great fortune, being a descendant from a long and noble line. The manor house and everything within it belonged to him and only him. And now that he was dead, it belonged to her and only her. This was not by sheer happenstance or luck, mind you. He was not born an only child, but he was born with a terrible hunger and greed for everything that his father had. When his father died and left everything to his older brother, he was filled with a dark hatred and a terrible idea that infected his every waking thought. And in barely no time at all, his brother found himself afflicted with a mysterious illness that came with a glass of wine and left by destroying him from the inside out. No one could identify it as poison, but his wife knew it for what it was, and she couldn't say anything about it for fear that his cold heart might turn on her too, for surely he'd turned on his own brother. Who was she? She came with a title that he'd already benefited from, and a reasonable dowry, but not much else. They hadn't had any children. His power in town was such that no one would believe her if she went to the authorities with what she only suspected was true. He had not only his brother's riches now, but also everything she had. Leaving was not an option, so waiting in silence was the only way. Her husband loved many things. He loved the paintings of himself on the walls. He loved the gold chalices they drank from nightly. He loved the fine wines that filled those golden chalices. He loved, most especially, the secret chamber that he told no one about that contained the oldest, most valuable, most spectacular collection of all his family's treasures. But he did not love his wife. She did not take personal offense because he did not love anyone. But she had to live in a house with him, and she knew he bore her no love. He told her so frequently, and he threatened her with divorce or worse if she ever disgraced him. She had nowhere to go and no one to trust, and so she bore his insults and his cruelty in silence. When he died suddenly in the night, in his own room for a servant to discover in the morning, she realized that he must have thought he'd live forever. He'd made no preparations for his death. He'd left no will behind, nothing of the sort. Naturally, everything went to his widow. This surprised her, for she assumed he wouldn't want her to have anything, only because he didn't want anyone other than himself to have anything. Yet here she was now with a glorious mansion to herself but she still didn't know where the immense family treasure was. No matter, she had no need of it. She passed day after day alone in that house, and day after day she didn't mind his absence. In fact, she was blossoming from it. Servants became friends. Family came to visit more and more often. She made friends from the museums she visited and the galleries she patronized. She went out of the house often, she visited gardens and sketched pictures of the flowers. She listened to live music and felt no shame when it made her smile or weep. Life, my friends, is for the living, and she felt as though she hadn't lived in a long time. If I could end the story there, I would. 
But of course something strange must happen, as it does in our lives. Strange things happen and disturb our peace and our joy. They must, for otherwise peace and joy would be meaningless. Don't you agree? One evening she couldn't go to sleep. She was tossing and turning all night, and so she got up, lit a candle, and decided to go downstairs to fetch a glass of milk. Wandering through the halls that were otherwise pitch black, her candle surrounded herself in a warm orange circle of light, and the light reflected off something sitting on the ground, something green and sparkling. She stooped to investigate and realized it was a large emerald ring, the largest emerald she'd ever seen, circled with diamonds and gold filigree. She picked it up, wondering how on earth it had got there. She didn't recognize it. She slipped it into the pocket of her robe. She carried on down the hallway until soon enough she saw something else glittering, hiding in the corner of one of the steps of her elaborate staircase. It was a chain of pearls, huge and glistening. She picked it up and placed it into her other pocket. She carried on her path downstairs. Headed towards the kitchen, she was distracted by the sight of yet another gleaming trinket. It turned her down the hall towards the front door. A shining tiara made of silver lined with huge sapphires and diamonds and pearls and more. She took it and placed it on her head. She opened the front door. The trail went on and on and she collected jewels and baubles following the path dutifully like she was Gretel in the old story. When her pockets were full, she placed the rings on her fingers and the brooches on her robe, necklaces around her throat, and bracelets on her wrists. Her hair down and her feet bare, she looked like some kind of fairy queen, jewels sparkling in the moonlight. The trail led to the family's crypt. Her husband's family name and coat of arms was carved above it. She momentarily dreaded entering, for she hadn't since her husband's funeral. But the promise of more glittering treasure was too great to resist. She pushed open the stone door and entered. The stone tombs sat silently covered in dust. She waited for some kind of sign and eventually it came when she rested the candle on the grave of her husband and saw a golden chain twinkling in the thickness of the air. It was stuck inside the covering stone that had words and images carved into it, false words of kindness and nobility describing the man she was married to. So she pushed the stone lid aside, Resting on the ugliness that was bones and dust and rotted flesh was the family's treasure. Piles and piles of it, hiding the hideous mess beneath it. The poison of the man who possessed it. Had he instructed it be buried with him after his funeral so that not even she would know where it was? Had he come back from the dead and placed it there himself, 
It didn't matter. It was here now. And it was hers. It is mine. She knew the voice, and it paralyzed her. Not with fear, but with the sorrow she felt at the return of this man who had brought her nothing but fear and disgust while he was alive. She sorrowed at his return instantly. She turned and saw him, standing in fine clothes, all the color drained from them and from his skin and his eyes, gray and transparent, a phantom. Empty as he was in life, his heartlessness plain in his expression. There was no more pretend in death. He had only fury and hatred in his eyes as he looked at the woman he once called his wife. It is mine. It is mine. He roared and approached her. She took a step back, but before she could decide to run or fight back, another phantom appeared. She recognized this spirit as her brother-in-law, the man who she knew was poisoned by her husband. And this phantom fell upon her husband, holding him down, and other ghosts, spirits from long before, some of whom she recognized from old portraits, came and joined in the fray. His family was turning against him. If such a crime as murdering one's own brother goes unpunished in life, it cannot be abided in death. His forefathers, the true owners of the treasure, swarmed him, protecting her from him. And she was surrounded, she realized, by the spirits of the men in his family. Her husband's father, his grandfather, his brothers, his uncles, his great-grandfather. All the men in his family of the same name the noble line that had passed the treasure down and added their own contribution to it. Who was she to them? She was not of their bloodline. She hadn't given them a male heir. The treasure ended with her husband, and she was being watched by these men, a stranger in this tomb, with no love for or any connection to any of them. But they needed something from her and she could sense it. Her brother-in-law stepped forward, a sad man dressed in finery, the trace of the poison still showing in the blue of his lips and the red of his eyes. You must destroy it. You must be rid of it. Throw it in the sea. Burn what you can, but destroy it. No one must have it. He sighed, and extended an accusatory finger at the tiara on her head and the necklaces at her throat. He meant for her to destroy the treasure. It has wrought nothing but destruction and death and pain. For centuries it has pitted brother against brother, father against son. It is the curse of our family. It draws out selfishness and greed and puts these before all love. It has destroyed all of us. It destroyed your husband. And now you must destroy this cursed treasure. You must do what we could not. 
She arched her brow and looked down at her hands covered in jewels. She looked at the coffin full of jewels that covered her cruel dead husband. She looked at the faces of these sad, defeated men all around her, long dead as well. She felt no lust for this treasure. But she did see money she could give to her museums, her galleries, her servants, her friends. She saw a grand new section of her local garden she could build. She saw a shelter for women who were much less fortunate than her. She saw a new music school that could be built so that she could smile and weep at more and more music for the rest of her life. That is what she saw when she looked at the treasure. She did not see herself, dead and buried years from now, hoarding it like some ancient and superstitious king. You must destroy it, the spirit implored. She smiled and shook her head. No. All of the men around her moaned and gasped, cried out and wept and raged. Her husband was let free, and he ran to her, trying to lash out at her with all of his strength. His hands passed through her, and she didn't even feel a breeze. Other male members of his family tried to strike her, grab her, shake her. They were nothing. Nothing but air and dust and empty greed. She smiled. You are cursed. But I am not one of you. And when they cursed her and screamed and called her names, she laughed at them. And they screamed even more, and it made her laugh even more. She left the tomb. The next day she sold a few baubles and made her first donation. That night all of the spirits came to her room and screamed and fought and ranted at her. But she still managed to go to sleep. The day after that she sold more and donated more. Yet the spirits still came the following night. And so it went for years and years until the day she died. She had changed the city she lived in for the better, bringing light and laughter and music and warmth and flowers and art to it. She was known for being a great patron of the arts and champion for the voiceless. She spoke up every day when injustice was done, and made up for her years and years of silent acquiescence. But she kept one item— she kept the large emerald ring, and she wore it always. Not because she loved the way it looked on her hand, though she did. Not because it reminded her of everything else that she had given, and all that she had yet to give, which it did. But because if she gave it away, the spirits would stop visiting her. Including the spirit of her murderous husband, whom she looked in the eye every night before she went to sleep. Every night, he grew more and more terrifying, more decrepit, more cruel, more hateful. But she would only say goodnight and smile. Every night, he and the other spirits would eventually become less and less bitter and furious, and more and more weary and sad, 
she continued to say goodnight and smile. Was this cruelty on her part? Making these men watch her thrive and smile at their attempts to torment her into doing their bidding? Perhaps. But I don't think so. I think she stood up to hundreds of years of tradition and greed, and thought it would be more of a curse to waste these riches through wanton destruction rather than spending them on those who could benefit from them. Perhaps, if the spirits realized that one day, they might be freed. I'm certain that's the case, because some curses are of our own creation, and we decide when they can end. I met the remarkable woman before she died. She was not afraid of me. She had said goodnight to her horrors long before I appeared. I like meeting people like that. Good night, my friends. everyone. Thank you so much for joining me this week for episode 54 of On a Dark Cold Night. This is Kristen, your writer, podcaster, who knows what. Sorry I'm so late this week, but hey, the episode is done, and I hope you guys liked listening to it as much as I liked writing it. If you enjoy what I do here and would like to help out, I really would appreciate it. If you don't know, I'm a team of one. I write everything, perform everything, compose the music, perform the music, edit the show, promote the show, etc., It's all me, and cards on the table. Sometimes I need a little help. So, if you want to pitch in, here are some fantastic ways. First, you can support the show on Patreon. You can find me there at patreon.com slash darkcoldnight. You can pick any amount you want to pledge monthly, and for any amount you'll get exclusive access to the soundtrack of the show. It's frequently updated, the tracks are downloadable, and you can access it for as little as $1 a month. This would be the greatest help to me, and I would really appreciate it. Also, if you want to donate only once and aren't interested in the soundtrack, you can buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com slash darkcoldnight. That's coffee.com slash darkcoldnight. That would also be very lovely of you. Um, I shout out all my donors and patrons on the show and on social media, so you'd be getting a sweet public thank you for your help. You can also support the show in some non-money-related ways. You can leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which would be a really great, huge help, too. Reviews help podcasts get noticed, so that's a great way to support what I do. You can also review us on Stitcher, Facebook, or anywhere else you like. I'll very likely give you a social media and on-air shout-out, too. You can follow us on Twitter at A Dark Cold Night, Instagram at Dark Cold Night Podcast, or on our Facebook page. I'd love it if you shared the word about the show, if you like what I do. Tell a friend, tell the world. Um, finally, you can listen to the show on the Radio Public app. It's totally free for you to use, and it really helps me because I'm a part of their paid listens program, which means that every listen through their app means your podcast are making money for their hard work. It's an easy, free way to help me out, and I'd greatly appreciate it. Thanks so much for tuning in. Every time someone says they're enjoying the show or that they're getting something out of it, it really warms my creepy little heart. So sincerely, thank you. Have a great night, my friends. Take care.